When I worked at Texas Instruments, I used to interview uh, people, and this is a bit exaggerated, but you do occasionally get people for whom they seem to have no weaknesses, at least in their own mind. And you can try every different direction to try to get them to identify, okay, look, where are your failures? I, I get that you've got lots of strengths, but tell me where you've sort of failed. And again, they'll, they'll couch it in terms like, well, I probably work too hard, or I'm, I'm too committed to the company, or, or whatever. And so, although it's an exaggeration, there is some truth to the fact that most of us are really better at talking about what we're good at than acknowledging where we've failed. It reminds me, in the early 1990s, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch called Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. <clears throat> and it made fun, basically, of the idea that instead of allowing ourselves to engage in any negative thinking whatsoever, any uh, criticism of ourselves, that what we should do is engage in sort of positive self-talk. And Stuart Smalley, of course, had a very famous line that anytime there was negative criticism, he would look into the mirror and say to himself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And that was sort of his way of dealing with any negative criticism or negative feelings that he might be having. Well, this past year, we've been going through First and Second Samuel in the book of Psalms, and we've been trying to understand how it is that we can have an undivided heart for God. And while it is that we can learn most of what we need to from positive examples, sometimes it's necessary to look at negative examples to see what it means to not have an undivided heart for God. And this morning we want to look at an example sort of like Stuart Smalley or what you might have seen up here of what a person can look like that God says, I want you to have nothing to do with that kind of attitude or uh, lifestyle. So before we begin, let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Let's pray together and then we'll look at God's word. Father, we are grateful for your presence with us this morning. Thank you that we can sing to you. Lord, thank you that we can give glory to your name. God, we ask that as we open your word, Lord, especially today as we look at negative example of what we are not to be. Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction. I pray that our eyes would be open. Lord, I help us to be honest with, with ourselves. Lord, help us to be honest with you. So, Lord, that we might experience your love and grace in the midst of who we really are, not who we pretend to be. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Psalm 36? Psalm 36. It's page 398 in the Bibles that the church provides. Psalm 36. Last week, we looked at Psalm 84. And in Psalm 84, we saw this very positive affirmation which says, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Well, Psalm 36 continues right on in that same vein. And in verses 5 through 9, continues to affirm the goodness of the Lord. Listen to what the psalmist says. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. 
your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. It's an incredibly positive affirmation of who God is and the goodness of God that he regularly bestows upon us, just like we saw last week from Psalm 84. But in Psalm 84, there was a condition. There was a condition to receiving the blessings and goodness of God. And it was that our walk must be blameless. Well, Psalm 36 picks up that idea. And where we want to look this morning is in the first four verses. In which we find further definition to what it means for us not to have a blameless walk. Listen to what these verses say. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to his sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Now when you first hear these verses, we can be a bit taken aback and the question can come in our mind, well, who exactly is the psalmist talking about here? Because on one hand, these seem to be pretty harsh statements. And our first in indication might be, well, he's probably talking about non-Christians. He's probably talking about those who have turned away from God, who reject God, who want nothing to do with God. After all, listen to that harsh language, the idea of wickedness and sinfulness. But then on the other hand, look in verse 3 and the way our pew Bible has translated it, second phrase, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Well, that might give you the indication that the person whom this psalmist is talking about in verses 1 to 4 used to be a wise person, used to be a good person, but has ceased to be so which would give you the indication that Psalm 36 is talking perhaps about a Christian, a Christian who is wandered away from the Lord or is not living the way they should be living. So which is it as we come to Psalm 36, 1 to 4? Who is God addressing here? Is he addressing believers? Is he addressing non-believers? Is he talking about them? Well, I actually think both are in mind. You see, this passage is quoted by Romans 3 to talk about the human condition. And the point is, is that what God has to say in verses 1 to 4 apply to those who are not yet believers in Jesus, who are continuing to live out the sinfulness in their lives and for whom there is something true that is keeping them from experiencing the blessings and goodness of God. But it's also true for those of us who are Christians, who choose to walk away from the Lord or to disobey God, that there can be something in our lives 
that can also hinder us, practically speaking, from experiencing the blessings and goodness of God. That yes, God withholds no good thing, but if our walk is not blameless as believers, we will not experience the rest of what Psalm 36 has to say about God. So what is this thing that can keep both non-Christians and Christians from experiencing the overwhelming goodness and favor of God? Well, it says it's a lack of fear of God. That's at the end of verse 1. But the crux of what Psalm 36 is getting at is what you might call the Stuart Smalley syndrome, which is addressed in verse 2. Verse 2 says, For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. What Psalm 36 is talking about is that kind of self-talk that we can engage in, in which we talk ourselves out of the reality of sin in our lives. The word flatters is used in the Old Testament for flattering another person. And it really does have in mind kind of looking in a mirror and speaking to ourselves positive words in order to get us to not focus on our failings, our shortcomings, and our weaknesses. That we flatter ourselves, that we engage in this inner dialogue in our mind. Whenever there's something that happens that might point to a failure on our part, a weakness, or a sin, that we somehow talk ourselves out of it. Now the word for flatters is literally the word deceives, which means that the person that Psalm 36 has in mind can also be someone who has low self-esteem. Because we all deceive ourselves and someone that you might not normally think about as being a self-flatterer because they're regularly beating themselves up, Psalm 36 verse 2 can still apply to you and I if that's our situation. Well, the first thing in verse 2, it says that we flatter ourselves too much to detect our sin. What does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. Regularly when people come to see me uh, for marriage counseling, I have the experience where we'll sort of sit down and talk about what's going on. And usually, let's just take the husband, for example. Uh, the husband will be there and the wife will be there and the husband will go through all of the faults that his wife has. That's great. And I will turn to the husband and say, okay, I've heard you say that your wife is manipulative and controlling. What about you? What are your faults? What are your sins? To which there will often be stunned silence. Sometimes you might get an answer, well, I probably work too much. No, that's not a sin. <laughs> I mean, it's not great. But if you say, I'm selfish and I work too much, or I'm greedy, therefore I work too much, or I'm arrogant and therefore I work too much, now that's a sin. So what are your sins or weaknesses? And again, the response may come back, well, I sometimes lose my temper when she does really crazy things. No, no, no. That's again about her. <laughs> She's still the source of the problem. 
What about you? And you can tell that a counseling appointment is not going to go very well. If when you ask the question, what is your sin? Or what is your weakness? And the person can't answer the question. On the other hand, I can think of a specific case where a couple came in. And the wife says in front of her husband and me, I've been an incredibly selfish person and it's destroying our marriage. I think another case where a couple came in and the husband said in front of his wife to me, because of my selfishness, I've been neglecting my wife and even though she's done some bad things, I think it's my fault. Do you know that both of those marriages are doing incredibly well today? This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, <laughs> the large beam sticking out of your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is true in other areas as well. There may be someone, a young adult, who is playing video games and spending lots of time with their friends and having trouble holding down a job. And you may think, well, I'm just not motivated. Well, maybe in a reality, it's struggling with laziness. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you're a musician who's super critical of other people. And you may think, well, I just have high standards. Well, it may be that you're struggling with the sin of legalism. Or maybe you or I are a person who's we're super blunt with other people. And we say, well, I'm a straight shooter. No, maybe we're struggling with the sin of harshness or a lack of grace towards other people. You see, we all talk ourselves into having a positive label for what it is that we do that somehow doesn't make it seem so bad. The classic case of this is Revelation chapter three, where Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea. And he says to them, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is what Jesus says to a church, a church just like ours. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But listen to what Jesus says. But you do not realize, this is to a set of Christians in a church, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is what we do. 
we tell ourselves, hey, I'm okay. Yeah, everything's all right. It's not that bad. And Jesus comes and says, you're deceiving yourself. You're flattering yourself too much to be able to detect your own sin. Now listen, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, this can be true for those with low self-esteem as well. You can say to yourself, or I can say to myself, well, I'm just a failure. No one wants me around. I can't do anything right. I never seem to get a break. Everybody, everybody would be better if I wasn't here. But listen carefully to that language. It's still deceiving. There's no sins in that list anywhere. Failure, that's not a sin. Not getting a break, that's not a sin. People being better off if I wasn't around, that's not a sin. We can deceive ourselves through positive self-talk or through negative self-talk. If you say, I'm a greedy, covetous person, I struggle with idolatry, I'm having trouble with pride, now those are sins. I'm a failure, nobody wants me around, that's not a sin. And so it doesn't matter if it's positive self-talk. Hey, I'm fine, everything's okay, what's the big deal? Or negative self-talk. I'm a terrible human being, I'm a horrendous person. As human beings, our natural condition is to deceive ourselves. To flatter ourselves too much. To be able to detect the presence of sin in our lives. Psalm 36 says there's a second problem when we deceive ourselves. Not only does it make us unable to detect our sins, it causes us to fail to hate our sin. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Maybe... We struggle with lust, and we say, but hey, everybody does. Maybe struggle with pride, but we think, well, pride, it's not really pride, I'm just confident. It can't be pride if you're right. And what's wrong with pride if it drives you to accomplish something or to achieve something? Maybe we struggle with gluttony, but we think to ourselves, at least it's not anger. That one's really bad. Maybe we struggle with coveting, but then we just say to ourselves, but I'm no good at anything anyway. Big surprise. All of that is what Psalm 36 is talking about. That's not a hatred for sin. A hatred for sin is a despising of the sin in our life. It's an embarrassment. It's to feel like the sin that's in our lives is the worst possible thing to have, want to have nothing to do with it, not to rationalize it, not to justify it, not to ignore it, but to hate it with a burning passion, not hate ourselves, but the sin that we see in our lives and to say, I've got to get this out of my life. No matter what it costs, this must get out. What does that look like? Romans 7, Paul says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin, law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's somebody who hates their sin. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this sinful body in which I live? Or in Luke, Jesus tells of a tax collector who stands at a distance while praying. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it looks like to hate your sin. Or in Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a story of a sinful woman. He says a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This woman is so consumed with gratefulness to God because she so desperately hated the sin in her life. She's so filled with gratitude because she used to be so filled with hatred for her sin and Jesus forgave her for it. Jesus rescued her for it. That's what it looks like. That's what Psalm 36 is talking about. It's not talking about somebody who can justify their sin, who can rationalize their sin, who says, well, at least I didn't do that thing over there. At least I don't have this as my part of my life. It's the person who looks at themselves and says, what is the matter with me? Why do I keep doing this over and over again? When will I be free from this? Like Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. That's a person who hates their sin. And Psalm 36 says that all of us as humans are in danger of the Stuart Smalley syndrome, which is we look at our lives in a mirror and we exercise self-deception, whether it's positive self-talk or negative self-talk. But at the end of that conversation with ourselves, we walk away from the mirror and we flattered ourselves too much to detect or hate our own sin. So what's the takeaway for us today? Takeaway is, if you're a believer in Jesus, you should be able to answer the question, what is the sin that you struggle the most with? If I were to sit down with you and to ask you, or you were to sit down with me and ask me, and say, what is that thing in your life, that sin that you struggle the most with, that you most want out of your life? If you could have one sin gone from your life, what would it be? If you're a Christian, you should be able to answer that question and to answer it with actual sins. Not say things like, well, I'm not motivated enough or I wish I probably didn't work so much or I'm, 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 I wish I just wasn't so down on myself all the time. Now listen, those aren't great things, but those aren't sins. What the Bible lists as sins are things like pride, Gluttony, laziness, lying, greed, lust, anger, covetousness, bitterness, selfishness, rebellion, 
gossip, idolatry, drunkenness, cruelty, envy. Now this is not the sum total of sins listed in the Bible, but it's a pretty good start. Most of the major ones are here. And you and I as a Christian should be able to look at this list and find ourselves on this list at least once or twice. If you think you're not, just ask your spouse. <laughs> or your accountability partner. Or your coworker. Or your kids. If we cannot detect our sins, we are deceiving ourselves. We're on this list somewhere. And you and I should be able to say, oh, I struggle with this. I struggle with pride. I struggle with gluttony. I struggle with laziness. Whatever it is, we ought to stop with the self-talk that says, well, I'm just not as motivated as I ought to be. Or I don't think as much of myself as probably I should. I get down on myself sometimes. Or you know what, I just, I like to have things my way. No, it's selfishness, or pride, or laziness, or gluttony. Look, these are sins, and we all have them in our lives. And Psalm 36 says, there's no way to experience the blessings of God if you're unwilling to identify and hate the sins in our lives. So if you can't pick out yourself on this list, go home today and ask God to begin to reveal it to you. Ask him to take the blinders away, to help you to see where you are. And if you find yourself on this list and you think, well, mine's not as bad as that one over there, or you feel right now during this sermon I hope my friend is listening because he is definitely up there. <laughs> if right now in your heart you don't feel this burning embarrassment to see yourself on the screen, ask the Lord to give you a heart that hates sin, that wants nothing more than to see this gone, eradicated from your life. But what if you are a Christian who you found yourself on this list a couple of times and you think, but by God's grace, that's not the dominant feature in my life anymore. Then your response, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people all over the sanctuary for whom pride was the defining feature of their life, but God has given them victory over that. I can give you story after story of people who were consumed by lust that God has set them absolutely and completely free from that. Maybe you're here and anger was a central feature of your life, but God has redeemed that and is transforming you. Yes, you still struggle with it. Yes, it's not gone, but God's giving you victory over that. Perhaps you were once a liar. And now God has made you truthful. Perhaps you were once greedy and God has transformed that into being generous. What should you do? Well, we thank God. God does this for us. This is the point. See, the idea of Psalm 36, the reason this is at the beginning of the psalm 
is not because David wants to just beat us up or God wants to beat us up. The reason for identifying our sin and hating our sin is so that God can save us from our sin. Because that's what he does. The rest of the psalm is about the blessing of God. But the point is, if you can't identify your sin and you don't hate your sin, you can't be saved from your sin. And Psalm 36 begins with an encouragement to you and I. Let's stop deceiving ourselves. Let's stop flattering ourselves. Let's stop thinking, hey, I'm not as bad as that person over there. Or I've got some euphemistic term to, to label my sin. Let's be honest with one another. We're fallen human beings. And somewhere on the list is something that we struggle with. The reason God asks us to do that is because when you identify your sin, when you hate your sin, then God can begin to rescue us from our sin.